And we're just going to read the first 12 verses. Colin last week uh, had us in Ephesus where he was showing what Paul the Apostle was up to there and after the riot um, we're told in verse 1 when the uproar had ended Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Perhas from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. And then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Amen. As I was preparing this passage uh, this week, I thought maybe it would be prudent to ask the stewards this morning just to ensure there are no youths sitting near open windows. Uh, Chuck Swindle, Charles Swindle, tells the story uh, in one of his books. I can't remember exactly which one. It's um, probably it's time to laugh again, but I can't remember exactly where it comes from. But he tells the story of a pastor who is about to leave his church and... um, It comes as a little bit of a surprise to the congregation that the man just stands up and announces to the congregation uh, that he's leaving, that this is his last Sunday, uh, and that he'll be gone uh, tomorrow morning. It came as a bit of a shock to the congregation who hadn't had any inclination that he was about to move on. And as he was shaking hands with people at the door, one woman in particular was absolutely inconsolable. Just weeping and crying and... The pastor quite moved um, that she thought um, that it required an emotional response like this, tried to comfort her. And he said, look, don't worry, don't cry so much, because after I leave, you'll get someone else and he'll be much better than I was. And she says, but you don't understand, that's what they said the last time and we got you. <laughs> In our reading today, we observe the Apostle Paul, who is a pastor, um, and he's preparing to leave. So, as he prepares to leave, um, let us observe a couple of things. First of all, I think he's, uh, he's following the Lord's example. In this episode in Paul's ministry, um, 
I see it very reminiscent of Jesus' last days among his followers prior to the crucifixion. Now this should come as no surprise since the author of Acts, uh, Dr. Luke, initially has set out in this letter, in the book of Acts, to show his friend Theophilus what Jesus of Nazareth uh, had begun on earth as God in human flesh, but continued to do by the Holy Spirit in and through ordinary followers of Jesus, people like Paul. And so Paul uses his last days in Greece and Macedonia to strengthen the new converts. Not only to strengthen the new converts, but to prepare the next generation of leaders to pick up the ministry and mission emphasis that has begun with Jesus preaching the kingdom of God. That missionary and mission emphasis I I see as the spiritual DNA of the kingdom of God. By DNA, I simply mean the spiritually genetic instructions used in the development and the functioning of the master's plan given to the disciples by Jesus in the Great Commission. Let me remind you what the Great Commission words say in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Jesus comes to the disciples on the mountain where he had told them to go, we're told in verse 16. And as they saw him, uh, some worshipped and some doubted. And then he goes on to say that... um, All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And in verse 90 he says, Therefore go, or or literally, therefore as you are going into the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that's still the same commission, that divine mandate is still in place today. That is the church's purpose on earth. Uh, We don't meet simply or gather as a church or congregate together simply to run a program that somehow pleases us, and even if it benefits us. The purpose of the church, the one command that we're to engage with is to make disciples as we're going into Jesus' world. And we see Paul do that as the Holy Spirit leads him and others throughout the book of Acts. That's why we've called this series The Spreading Flame. Jesus promised that when the Holy Spirit would come on the believers, that almost as a matter after the fact, they would be witnesses. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth. And that commission that Jesus gave the disciples is worked out through that promise of the Holy Spirit coming. It's also a fulfilling of that commission We rather unfortunately in the church uh, sometimes refer to the conclusion of a minister's pastorate as the end of a ministry. Now while the tenure of leadership may come to an end, there ought to be a real sense in which the minister's ministry, the pastor's ministry, never ends because in actual fact it never began. Uh, Not with him at least. You see, ministry isn't ours in the real sense. You and I are never more than highly privileged people and unprofitable servants at that who get to hold the torch for a while. That's all we do. Ministry isn't ours. Ministry is the Lord's. Ministry belongs to Jesus. And and he's very happily given us the responsibility of being the torchbearers of the bright gospel message 
that brings enlightenment to men and women about salvation. This torch that we hold is passed on to us from those who went before us. And unless we drop it, or it goes out during our lifetime, we will simply pass it on to others who will come after us. Many years ago, um, speaking to an elder in a church, I wanted to pursue with him just exactly what his hopes and aspirations and vision for the church was. Now, very nobly, I believe, he said, my father was an elder in this church, and now I'm an elder, and I received the church in the way that it was from my father, and my vision is to pass the church on to my son when he becomes an elder in the same way that I received it from my father. Now, some of you think, maybe thinking that's quite a noble thing to desire. But actually, I was quite saddened by it. Because I believe that the desire that the present generation leaders needs to have, if the church is to have any impact in the future, is that we want to ensure that the people that we pass it on to will be more richly blessed, will be more powerfully used of God, will be greater ambassadors and live closer in holiness and perfection to Jesus than we ever did. I have two children. Well, they're not so much children, they're very responsible adults now. My prayer from, for them since their childhood has been, Lord, I want James and Judith to experience a relationship with you personally and within the church far greater than I've ever achieved. And I believe that that's the heart of Jesus. I believe that's the heart of Paul, that as he fulfills this commission, that he wants to ensure that those coming after him will have a greater opportunity, will be more effective, and actually that he can quite happily stand back from it. You know, Lord, preserve us from the leader who has to endure to the end, but rather than bring other people in and, and release them into that place of, of responsibility. Now, like Jesus, as Paul prepares to leave, he wants to ensure that he has done everything humanly possible under the divine anointing that God has given him to enable those coming after him to pick up the torch of the gospel message and to run their race faithfully and fruitfully. So in verses 1 and 6, through 6, um, let's call this Paul's continuing ministry. Because the ministry doesn't come to an end just because Paul leaves. And Paul's objective, I believe, is twofold. First of all, he wants to encourage and strengthen the Gentile churches. Very shortly after the riot described in Acts 19 in Ephesus, Paul left there and headed towards Jerusalem. That's his destination. Um, in the same way that Jesus himself sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem, Paul says, I must return there. I've got a destiny that, that, that means that I have to reach Jerusalem. But he goes there via Macedonia and Greece. Um, Achaia. Uh, for the correct pronunciation for those who were here a couple of weeks ago, um, as he had planned in Acts 19 and 21. Paul wanted to make, out of concern for the churches, at least one last visit to them, to these churches that the Lord had helped him to found. And when you read of the trials that Paul faced in order to remain true to God's divine call upon his life, you begin to understand what his commitment to church leadership cost him 
and I was again personally challenged by this because, you know, sometimes um, in pastoral ministry the going can get tough. Uh, sometimes it's not always easy to get up in the morning and to be motivated by what you know faces you. But just listen uh, what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 following. Uh, he's having to defend himself, which is completely against uh, the apostles' nature, against some sort of super apostles who have come in and, and are sidetracking uh, the work of Christ in the Corinthian church. And so he writes, are they servants of Christ? <laughs> I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely. I have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I have received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I often gone without food. I have been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face daily the pressure, get this, of my concern for all the churches. That's what gets Paul up in the morning. His concern for the churches. And if you're a fellow leader with me, I want to ask you the question, what motivates you to be involved? Is it concern for the churches? Because it's on that that you and I will be judged. So Paul, um, verse 3 tells us that as he travelled throughout the area with concern for the churches, he spoke many words of encouragement to the people. Now encouragement is a key theme in this passage. You'll see it in verses 1, verses 3, and verse 12, if you still have your Bibles open. Now the word, um, in, in verse 12, it's translated comforted. It's the same word. In the original language in Greek, it has the same root, word that is used to describe no less than the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, or the paracletos, uh, the comforter who will come alongside uh, followers of Jesus to strengthen them. When Jesus is no longer able to be physically present on earth. And that's what Paul's doing. Under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit flows through him and it's attributed to him that he's working with this divine commission to comfort and to encourage the believers. So Paul has an entourage of men with him um, that represents all the places that he's, where he's established new churches. I don't think it's incidental that Luke records in verse 4 the names of the people as they serve as witnesses. Should Theophilus, his friend for who the letter was originally written, would require verification of what Luke is telling him. Uh, in this passage, as elsewhere... Uh, we see Paul's concern for team ministry. Paul is very team ministry orientated. Whenever we read of him being alone in the scriptures, uh, invariably there's an expression by him at the time uh, that others should join him or come to him. Paul doesn't like to be alone in ministry. He likes other people around him. Uh, team ministry, uh, of course, would not only have provided Paul with company, but it would also have provided him with accountability. None of us in the church should operate as a freelance, as an individual. 
uh, we're, uh, one of the favorite metaphors that Paul uses in describing the new body of Christ on earth, the church, uh, is, is indeed that body uh, image. Uh, the body image with every individual member joined together in one coexistent experience of life in Jesus' new body on earth. And that means that everyone's important. We all contribute to the life of that body using whatever gifting or faith that we might have. And Paul knows the importance of having people around him for company, for fellowship, and for accountability. He also knows the important principle of getting believers uh, beyond simply the new birth experience, committing their life to Jesus, and getting them rooted and established in the faith that they have, so that they might grow into become mature disciples. In Ephesians 3 and verse 16 following, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And again in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7, So then, just as you received Christ as Lord, that's conversion, being saved, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And so he spends three months in Greece, applying himself to this task of strengthening the believers, encouraging them, rooting and establishing them in their faith and causing them to mature. He probably spent most of that three months from what we can glean in the city of Corinth, where uh, he wrote the book, the book of Romans. So not only is he having regular meetings, he's also writing that huge treatise that, that many commentators describe as the gospel according to St. Paul, the, the whole book of Romans. And just as he's about to set out for Syria, he's made aware of a plot hatched by the Jews who wanted him dead. And so instead of risking uh, the intended shorter two-day route, he takes a five-day journey and joins the others who had gone ahead to, into Troas. I think there's a lesson for us here today, uh, that while we may have a clear understanding of what our plans and our intentions are, maybe even the way that the Lord is leading us, that we should never become so entrenched, either as individuals or as a church, that we cannot make alternative adjustments if and when circumstances require us to do so. And Paul had these two goals in mind as he visited the various churches. His first one, as we've looked at, uh, was to encourage and strengthen the, state, the saints that they might stand true in the Lord and be effective witnesses. But there's a second purpose. Uh, he wants to solicit support for the Jerusalem church. Now Luke doesn't make reference to it in Acts, but we know from Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 16, and 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, that Paul also wanted to finish taking up the collection for the needy believers in Jerusalem. And the men that accompanied him, uh, described in Acts 20 and verse 4, are representatives from the churches. And they've been appointed to travel with Paul and to help the fund with, handle the funds. Um, you can find out more about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 18 through 24. Now, giving... It's just one of the ways in which Christians are both blessed and become a blessing to others. I don't have time to develop it here, and since it isn't in our text, we simply want to note that it did take place at this time, and we'll return again um, somewhere to look at stewardship on another occasion. 
So we move from Paul's continuing ministry to his final meeting in the area. Verses 7 through 12. Paul's concluding meeting. Here we get to observe Paul in the context of a local church. Um, Many, many years ago, it was very fashionable with young people to wear a bracelet with the initials that kind of spelled out, what would Jesus do? And uh, it was there kind of dangling in front of them so that whenever they faced a circumstance in life, they had to ask themselves the question, what would Jesus do? And they would try to behave like that. Um, One of my mentors in the Christian ministry is a guy called Jim. And uh, if I wore a bracelet, I would have one that said, what would Jim do? Because he's just, he's just such a good godly example of, of, of age and experience and wisdom. And uh, I think it's good for us to look in scripture and to see what Paul would have done. And, and here we see him in the context of the local church. Not just in the, in the national or the global expression of that. But here we see him. He's not able to get to Jerusalem for the Passover as he had wanted to. So now he changes his mind, changes his itinerary. And he eagerly desires to reach there by Pentecost uh, instead. James will be picking that up. James Anderson will be picking that up in Acts 20 verse 16 this evening. Now yet, despite his eagerness to travel, to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, he waits one week to speak into the lives of the local believers. Now it may just be that uh, he just can't get a ship. He just cannot get the travel arrangements in place. But I think that he knows that he has something to give them. Remember, when he had written the book of Romans in Corinth just months earlier, he said to the church in Rome, I eagerly desire to visit with you that I might impart some spiritual gift to you. The church is already established. But this man knows what the anointing of the Spirit has given him to impart to those that he addresses some spiritual gift. And, you know, I think that he wants to speak into the lives. Um, That's a phrase that I'm very comfortable with and very happy with, and I I believe is very important for us as individual believers, that we need older, wiser, maturer, um, people with a, a very real sense of being more greatly anointed by the Spirit than we are at times, to speak into our lives. I mean in the prophetic sense, um, I mean also just in guidance sense, I mean in encouraging and, and, and building up sense, that we need people around us that can speak into our lives. There is something about the spoken word from someone who's anointed by the Spirit that touches our hearts and, and changes us. And Paul is doing that. He speaks into the lives of the local believers. Luke tells us that in the place where they met, there are many lamps in this upstairs room and uh, that attention to detail again not incidental why did he put that there is he is he trying to explain the circumstances in which one member of the congregation uh, is so overcome with tiredness uh, Eutychus may even have been affected by the fumes from these lamps that that he uh, slipped into this deep sleep and fell three stories to his death but you know as I read it um, I'm quite happy to conclude that's all he means by that, or just the fact that he wants to tell you it's night time and the lights needed to be on. But it struck me that as well as being many lamps in the rooms that was given off light and fumes, there are many spiritual lamps in that room. 
Because all of the people who are gathered there are God's people. And as Jesus is the light of the world who reflects his light through individual believers, so they are lights to the world. Now from, just leave that thought with you. It's not, I'm not going to make a big issue out of it. From Luke's brief description, we learn something of the practice of this local church. First of all, observe that they met on the Lord's Day. Now the believers at this time in church history would have been accustomed to meeting together on Sunday, the first day of the week. Uh, this is likely to be an evening service, as Sundays at this stage were still normal working days, and people would only be able to attend once they had finished work. Now, during the early years of the church, the believers um, did maintain some of the Jewish traditions, such as the hours of prayer, and we learn that in Acts 3 and 1. But as time went on, they moved away from the Old Testament traditions and developed their own pattern of worship, as the Spirit had taught them. I remember that the church was born when the Spirit came at Pentecost, um, i.e. 50 days after the Passover Sabbath. So you add 50 days to the Saturday of the Passover Sabbath, you get to Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week, which also coincides with the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So the believers meet together to celebrate the fact that this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead, but this is also the day that the Spirit came. So Sunday is a good day for Christians to meet together. It's the practice of the early church. It's still good for us as God's people to gather. And I think it's still good for us to gather on a Sunday for a variety of reasons. Not least that it is the tradition, or at least the church tradition that goes as far back as the New Testament itself. Some of the traditions that you and I uh, would strongly adhere to will be very recent developments in church history. But meeting on a Sunday goes right back to the formation of the church on the day of Pentecost. So they met on the Lord's Day. They also met as the Lord's people. The church hadn't uh, got around to segregating people by race, age, gender, socioeconomic backgrounds, pre- or post-Reformation theology or preferred styles of music, etc. So those who met would have been as diverse group of people as the population of the world around them. So we can surmise that as well as being well-to-do employers, there are employees, there are slave owners, there are slaves, there are Gentiles, there may have been some Jews, there are men and women um, present in this gathering. Now, apart from their commonality in Jesus Christ, these people would probably never have come together for any other reason whatsoever. And uh, whenever we find church a bit boring, or whenever we find church just quite not to our style, remember that your preferences are actually pretty much irrelevant. <laughs> um, that's not to say that we don't need to hear each other and listen to each other and be sympathetic. But you see, the reason that we meet is primarily because we're God's people. We meet together as the Lord's people. And if that's the conviction that we have, you know, you'll put up with a, you'll tolerate a whole lot of stuff. Um, I don't want to be too specific about this, but very recently, um, I was in a Christian gathering. And I came away from it. And I thought, oh, it was awful. <laughs> it was just dreadful. Um, the world wouldn't have tolerated the shoddiness and the, 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 the lack of standard there was 
in the presentation by one of the participants. But we're the church. And we kind of put up with things. Not because we like them or they do us a whole lot of good, but we're the church. And we meet as the Lord's people. But these people are all one in Christ. And that and that alone ought to be the identity of God's people whenever we meet together. Galatians 3 and 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So they met in the Lord's day, they met as the Lord's people, and they ate from the Lord's table. There's a lovely story told in, in 2 Samuel about a man named Mephibosheth. You can't say that with a set of dentures that are loose. Uh, he was the son of Jonathan, the grandson of King Saul, and he was crippled in both feet because of injury sustained in a childhood fall. Now, King David, after Saul was dead and David ascended to the throne, he wanted to show kindness towards any of Jonathan's family for whom he had a great love. And so he invited Mephibosheth, that's the only last time I'm going to say that, uh, he invited him into the royal court. And so this, this man, who was crippled in both feet, sat at David's table. Oh, I'm going to have to say it again because I'm going to read the scripture now. In 2 Samuel 9, verses 11, it says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. See, he was treated as an equal of everyone else who gathered at that table. And his disability wouldn't even have been noticed as he was seated at a guest at the royal banquets. What an amazing picture that is for me uh, of the early church as they share a meal that's called the love feast, the agape feast. Um, they would have this meal uh, and, and after either or during they would observe the Lord's Supper. And the communion meal is the most important symbol of our fellowship together in Jesus. Whereas here, no distinction is made either of a social or economic status of the worshippers. Because at the Lord's table, at communion table, at Eucharist, uh, the breaking of bread, whatever church tradition you come from that you might call it, there we are all simply penitent sinners who bow the knee before the Lord of the cross of shame. So they ate from the Lord's table and they heard the Lord's message. You know, again, it's, it's my surmising, but I just wonder if Paul is teaching from his newly written letter to the Romans. As he, that's why it's such a long sermon, yeah? Uh, because Romans is a great book. But there's a lot of wealth, a lot of depth, a lot of stuff in that as Paul travels them through the road that leads to salvation and his explanation of it. He certainly had a knowledge of what he knew his message was about and he could speak on and on and on and on. We don't know anyone like that in Charlotte Chapel. But the word of God was always declared in Christian assemblies. And that's an important point for us. This included the public reading of the Old Testament scriptures, 1 Timothy 4 and 13, and as well uh, as whatever apostolic letters had been received, Colossians 4 and 16. Uh, in Preachers and Preaching, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, says this, The decadent periods and eras in the history of the church have always been those periods in which preaching has declined. Uh, if you're a visitor here for the first time today in Charlotte Chapel, we have uh, a historical, uh, dedicated view of preaching in its place within the ministry of the church. Even the architecture tells you that. The pulpit is central to what we do as worship. The Lord's table and the pulpit. 
In some churches today, it's a platform with a carry-on perspex stand. Uh, that say, the architecture says something about the importance of the church you meet in. Preaching is going out of vogue in some churches today. And sad to say, these churches, if not now, will be the weaker for it. Now, Paul knew that this was to be his last sermon to the church in Troas, and so he was happy to make it a long one. Well, he's leaving the next day, so nobody can criticize him anyway. He can't get emails or text messages saying, by the way, that was way too long yesterday, because uh, he's out of there the next morning. One Wearsby says, the word of God is important to the people of God, and the preaching and the teaching of the word must be emphasized. The church meets for edification as well as for celebration. And that edification comes through the preached word. Preach the word is still God's admonition to spiritual leaders. 2 Timothy 4 and 2. And finally, they experience the Lord's power. Eutychus, um, whose name in Greek means fortunate or lucky, um, maybe not so, Firstly, falls into a sleep, and then secondly, he falls out the window and plummets to his death. Now, normally, such a happening would ensure a quick closure to the service, uh, but not while there is an apostle present who has the anointing of God on his life and ministry. Paul simply raised him from the dead and continued with his sermon. Now, Eutychus is probably a young boy between the ages of 8 to 14. We can learn that from the original language. Uh, so we shouldn't judge him too harshly for falling asleep. And the tense of the Greek verb indicates that he was gradually overcome. So presumably he fought off the effects of tiredness and the fumes, uh, and the effects from the fumes of the lamps until he could manage it no more. Uh, you know that feeling, don't you, when you've just, you're absolutely um, shattered and you come to church and the preacher's voice sort of goes away into the distance and you say, you're desperately trying to hold on and stay awake and maybe even lick your eyelids with your finger or something. Just desperately trying to stay awake. I can tell that you're experienced in this from your reaction. Um, an Anglican synod was once debating the problem of apathy and lethargy among church attendees when one eminent archbishop stood up and seemingly about to reveal a staggering statistic said, it has been calculated that if everyone who falls asleep in the pews of our churches every Sunday were carried out and laid head to foot, they would be much more comfortable. <laughs> Don't be hard on Eutychus. Don't be hard on Paul either. This is his last opportunity to address these people. And he has a lot of truth to teach. And he knows that if he can get that truth across, it will benefit his hearers. So as I close, can I ask you to consider the value you place on church attendance, first of all? It's Sunday. What's your priority? If you're a Christian, why aren't you in church? Oh, there are other pressing things. Really? Really? What stress do you place on the fellowship with other believers? Well, I'm a bit of a loner. Reflects my individual lifestyle just to do my own quiet time and spend time in prayer alone with God. Even at communion, I, I, I don't like all the fellowship stuff. I'm kind of an individual who likes to think of Jesus dying for me rather than, as the Word says, for the world. Well, 
What emphasis do you place on the preaching and the teaching of God's Word? I believe that your answer has direct relevance to the experience that you will have in relation to God's power. Because it's in the midst of God's people, seeking God's face, listening to God's word, that you and I experience the greatest measure of God's power. So in conclusion then. See, I said finally in conclusion, it's a technique. Paul is preparing to leave but these people that he leaves behind are prepared to live. As Paul used this time to prepare to leave, he used all the gifts and the resources available to him to ensure that when he was gone, these people would continue to live on in their newfound faith. What emphasis do individual Christians place on sharing their testimony and faith in relevant ways that will lead others to become a Christian? What emphasis do we place on ensuring that those who come to faith will continue to be built up in their knowledge and experience of all that Jesus has commanded us to observe. And when the history of our era is told, will we be known as people who carried the torch so that our world can continue to experience the spreading flame of the gospel message? Time alone will tell. Let's pray.